Ernie Johnson was a Emmy Award-winning sportscaster with Turner Sports, with CBS Sports. But something in Ernie's story made it take a radically different life turn. In 1997, Ernie met Jesus. Some years ago, after meeting Jesus, he and his wife, Cheryl, who's a, uh, a professional counselor, were sitting on their couch, and there was a 2020 special on television about Romanian state-run orphanages and about the children, the, the thousands and thousands of children that were horribly neglected within those orphanages. It was breaking their hearts. They had everything in the world. They had two beautiful kids. They had a beautiful home in the Atlanta suburbs. They had everything. And yet Cheryl turned to Ernie and said, we should go get one of those kids. Just two or three weeks later, Cheryl was in Romania. And uh, they had agreed that they would get a little girl between the ages of six and 12 months in good health, and they would be the heroes and bring her back to the U.S. and give her the life that she wasn't otherwise going to have, sitting abandoned in an orphanage where she would have almost no human contact and sit in her own filth. And so three weeks later, Ernie gets a call. It's from his wife, Cheryl. She's in Romania. And she says, I think I found the child. He is about two and a half years old. He's virtually never been out of his crib. He actually can't walk because he's got a club foot. He was abandoned at, at birth and he had never been outside before, so I, I took him outside the orphanage and he screamed the entire time because he was terrified of the brightness of the sun and the openness of the space. He's also malnourished, and they tell me he's deeply autistic, that he will never form any real relationships and he'll probably never speak and he'll never really connect with us. And he won't essentially acknowledge us even as his parents, but, but that's what his wife Cheryl tells Ernie. I found the one God wants us to adopt. That hadn't exactly been the deal, and yet here she was seeing the possibility to take all that God had given them, so much wealth and privilege, uh, you know, even fame, a uh, huge house, a wonderful family, and invest it in those who needed it. We're going to read a story in which Jesus talks about investing what God gives us, investing it in his kingdom, investing it in his grace, investing it in the things that matter most to the heart of God. It's Luke, the gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter beginning in the 11th verse. This is God's word. While they were listening to this, he, that is Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. 
And so he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. And he said, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came in and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge now of ten cities. The second came in and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your very own words. You wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be their king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. What do we see here? First, we see that, that, that we hold all of God's blessings in trust. They aren't ours, they're his. We hold them in trust. Let me retell the story uh, so that you could perhaps get a better grasp of what's going on here. Because a mina was about four months wages. That'd be about $12,000 today. And, uh, and, and this, this king has said, hey, I want you to invest this. I'm giving 10 of you $12,000 each, and I want you to invest it until I come back some years from now and see what kind of return I've gotten on my investment. And so he takes his money to Wells Fargo Advisors, to Edward Jones, and to Stiffel Nicholas, and to seven other brokers. And, and they work for him. Their job is to invest what they have been given, to put it to work for him. And then he gets on his yacht and he sails around the globe for two years with his sweet wife, Monique, and their Rottweiler named Marx. And after several years, he returns. And the first firm invested his, his $12,000 and says, well, you, you really did well here because it's now $120,000. So he says, awesome, good job. Here's my kid's $12 million trust fund. Invest that too. The second did the same. They put the money to work. That $12,000 became $60,000. And he said, awesome, here's my dog's $6 million trust fund. Invest that too. And the third firm told him, well, we think you're a really difficult client and you're kind of scary and creepy too. And so we just stuffed your money in a mattress and threw it out back. Um, you know, the 12000 is still out there. We'll go drag it in. Um, you know, of course, it's worth about 10% less now because of inflation over two years. But, uh, you know, you can have it back. Uh, you know, we weren't going to do anything with it. And he says, are you crazy? I'm not telling you which firm did that, but 
I might tell you that in private. Are you crazy? You could at least have invested it in two-year government bonds. At least I'd have gained some interest. You're fired. And he slams the door on him, and he takes his money, and he gives it to the first firm and says, invest this for me. Now, who do you identify within this story? You know, we aren't the master. The master is pretty much always Jesus in his parables. Uh, we aren't the rich guy. We're the brokerage firms. We're the master's servants, and the master is Jesus. He hold, we hold the blessings he has given us, everything he's given us, in trust. And Jesus wants us to invest that in his mission, in his kingdom. Jesus' words here are a direct assault on the Pharisees and the conservative religious establishment within Israel in first century Palestine because God had given them the law of God. He had given them the promises of salvation. He had given them, you know, grace upon grace, the promise of forgiveness, the whole temple system. He gave it to them and he said, you're to be a blessing to all the nations. Invest this. And they sat on it. And they didn't do it. What that looks like in a church context is this. Jesus gives us a congregation of 100 members. He gives us the Bible. He gives us the gospel. He gives us maybe even a building. And above all, he gives us the riches of salvation, the message that sins can be forgiven and you can be made right with God only through believing Jesus, trusting him with your life. He gives us all of that. And he says, I want you to invest all of this in others. And then he goes away for a few years. And when he returns, those 100 people have become 75 people. And he asks, what happened? Well, some of us have died, and the world around us is so filled with sin, but we taught our people to memorize their Bible verses, and we've kept pure and holy, but we didn't risk anything lest we fall into sin, uh, but we did keep ourselves pure. And Jesus replies, that's not what I wanted. I gave you this grace to invest it. That was your mission in life. That's why you're here. This was my gospel, not yours. You're acting it like it was yours to do with as you please. It's my gospel. It's my good news. I'm the one who's going out and saving all these people. And there are all these people all around you. And they need to know me. They need to experience my favor to be set free from what holds them in bondage. I gave you all you needed to invest it in them. And what did you do? He gives us blessings in order to invest those in other people. Above all, he gives us the gospel to invest in other people through his church and beyond his church. You know, we're not the owners. We hold it all in trust. And all we have, everything we have, is a gift of God's grace. I mean, it's mind-altering as a realization that my condo doesn't belong to me. It's Jesus' condo, and he's letting me live in it to steward it for his purposes to advance his kingdom. Uh, what about your car? What does it mean to invest your car if you, have a, if you have an automobile in kingdom work? Who are you giving a lift? Who are you taking to their doctor's appointment? Who are you picking up groceries for? Whose kids are you shuttling around so that mom and dad can actually have a Saturday together? Uh, and yes, your money. That too. It's not mine. It's, I'm just the steward. You know, I think of, of all the money that goes through my bank account in one lifetime, paycheck after paycheck, month after month, over years and over decades, um, possibly 40, 50 years of income. And I think how much of that goes to restaurants versus education versus shelter versus personal needs 
versus the ministry of the gospel versus the poor. And that does that really line up with my life priorities? Or try this one on, parents. My kids belong to God so that I can invest them in the master's business. What about when your teenager wants to go on that risky, scary missions trip to the Middle East and you're worried that they could get hurt? Would you rather have your teen live a short life packed with significance in response to the life-giving call of Jesus Christ or would you rather they have a long life of meaningless distractions and self-absorption? You know, it's a mind-altering realization. None of this is actually ours. We hold this in trust. And above all, Jesus has entrusted us with his gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners like us. Are you investing God's grace in your family members? Are you investing God's grace in your spouse? Or are you still trying to do it through the law? Are you investing God's grace in your children, in your friends, in your neighbors, in your associates? Or have you stuffed the gospel in a mattress and buried it out back? You know, this notion that we're not the owners, that we just hold everything in trust because it all belongs to the Lord, it brushes up against our pride. You know, um, you, know you look at a two-year-old, and they're cute, but you know, a two-year-old hasn't really worked for anything. They've produced nothing. Everything he has has been given to him as a gift. He hasn't earned a nickel, and he doesn't even take care of his own stuff. But another child picks up his toy, and what comes out of him? Mine, you know. Uh, what do you mean it's yours? You didn't buy that. You didn't work for that. That's God's toy. He wants you to share it. He wants you to invest your toys in your friends. You know, but we're all still two-year-olds inside. We just find more sophisticated ways of saying it, you know. No, you don't understand. I worked hard for what I have. I worked long hours. I got an education. I put in my time for the things that are mine. But that's, that's nice. But um, what does that have to do with the fact that you did not get childhood leukemia when you were little? What does that have to do with the fact that you weren't hit by a car and paralyzed and therefore unable to do most work. What does that have to do with the fact that God is the one who gave you your strength, gave you your health, gave you your intellectual ability, and gave you every single job you ever had, the good ones and the bad ones, both? What does that have to do with the fact that there, there were people pouring into you from, from the womb in order to help you be your best self? Sunday school teachers and, and sitters and nursery workers and parents and, and, and teachers and church workers and guidance counselors and all these people pouring all this time and effort in order to enable you to receive the things that you've received from God's hand. It explains the master's response to the third servant. I'm not going to trust you with that anymore. I'm going to give it to one who I know will invest it in my kingdom. You know, if you could imagine... It would be like um, if you were going to go away for a couple years on a long journey and you were worried about your house. And so you, you got kind of a house sitter who would be kind of your caretaker and they would, they would have access to your accounts and whatnot and just make sure that everything's in order. Uh, you pay them well for this. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so they just keep all your affairs in order until you come back. And so you're, you, you know, you're, you're sitting you know, on your boat you know, drinking you know, a nice Chianti. And, and you look down on your phone, because you have Starlink on your yacht, and, and you notice that your caretaker is 
throwing up all these Facebook posts of vacations in Maui and Dubai and Ibiza. And you notice that your caretaker is taking all of his friends on an all-expense-paid trip flying business class to an eco-lodge in Madagascar. And you know what you're paying this guy. And it's not that much. And then you get an alert that your house has been listed for sale. And you didn't agree to sell your house. I mean, you'd, you'd be pretty ticked. You would feel like the master in the parable. I'm not going to trust this guy. He's fired. See, we hold God's blessings in trust. Uh, and notice, this is not a competition. Each one is called to respond to the, to the Lord's authority. Uh, the servants who invest the minas all get different results, and all but one of them invest the minas, and that's okay. They were faithful to invest it. Notice there are 10 servants. That's very intentional. There were 10 because if there were 12 servants, what would all of us say? Oh, this only applies to the 12 apostles. But 10 is a number of completion in Scripture. There were 10 commandments. God spoke the universe into existence using 10 words. There were 10 generations listed from Noah to Abraham. 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. There were 10 servants because this is Jesus' way to say that I'm talking about all of you. This is not just the church collectively. This is not just the apostles individually. I'm talking about everyone who follows me. I am giving you, I'm going to pour out blessings upon you. And I want you to invest them in others, in the kingdom, in the things that are close to the heart of God. This is also how leaders are developed. You know, there was a, a pastor um, who really understood. It was my pastor in, in Northern Virginia who uh, mentored me before I went to seminary. And, and he, uh, he really believed that, you know, you know, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, you can take charge of 10 cities. You know, it's how, it's how leaders are made. You, you give them a small task and you see how they do it. And what he would do when he would get a seminary uh, intern is they'd always come in, you know, thinking they know all the answers. Hey, I want to teach and I want to preach. Can I preach Sunday morning for you? And, and he would always say, well, actually, Miss um, B uh, down in, in Springfield, she's getting up in years and, and her uh, ceiling and the walls in her kitchen are cracking, and she's worried there could be lead paint in there, and uh, she's worried about her grandkids. And so, what I want you to do is, um, you know, go to Home Depot, get some supplies, and I want you to, you know, scrape her walls, clean it all up, cover everything over with some kills, uh, you know, fill in the spots that need it, and then repaint her kitchen for her. And then you just sit back and watch and listen. And the one that complains, God has not called you at this time to pastoral ministry because you're doing ministry for yourself. I gave you a small thing. You wanted a big thing. I gave you a small thing and you complained because you're not doing this because you want to love God's people. You're doing it because you want to make a name for yourself. That was his test. And if they did it and they didn't complain, he would give them a bigger task and more responsibility. And soon they would be preaching on Sunday morning. But it's always this way. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of ten cities. Take charge of five cities. Instead of pining after the blessings we wish Jesus would give us, what if we invested the ones he already has given us? You know, it's not a question of how those might impact others. Not that alone. It's also about how that might impact you as you begin to invest your life, your home, your car, your finances, your resources in God's kingdom, in, in justice, 
in the things that are close to his heart as you begin to do that it's not just that God uses you to get the ministry done God will use the ministry to get you done and he will then pour upon you greater responsibility and greater freedom what if I invest the gospel in other people telling them about Jesus and they think I'm weird honey you're a Christian you are weird. The Bible calls us a peculiar people for a reason. We're supposed to be weird. We're supposed to be very different from everybody else. And they're, if they're not kind of shaking, scratching their head and shaking their head a little bit, you're not doing it right. You know, uh, but the only eyes whose approval you need are your heavenly fathers. And you've already got that. So I wouldn't worry about your friends and your neighbors liking you. Uh, he just wants you to love them and invest what he's given you in them. And, and see what God does with that. And, you know, besides, you get to live in a community with all these other weird people. Um, we've got a secure foundation for gospel risk-taking, and the outcome is less important than the fiduciary duty. To him who is faithful in small things, bigger things are given. And notice, this is not a competition. Uh, you know, it's not that, oh, the, the guy who got the 10 minus from his one is better than the guy who got five. No, they're, they're both blessed. Um, it's not about becoming successful. You know, people think in ministry that we need to be successful. We need to have a thousand members. We need to have a million dollar budget. We need to, and those would be nice, uh, but we need to have a big media footprint and all this kind of stuff and fame and fortune and everything. And, and, and that's a success model, which is a worldly model from the business world that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, you can be successful and rotten to the core. You can have a big church filled with people who aren't walking with God because you're not training them to do that. Uh, you can have a whole group, of, a, a church filled with people who are watching a concert instead of worshiping their God. And that's not, we don't want success. Some say, yeah, we don't want success. Instead, what we want is faithfulness. Just stick with it. Stick to the word. Keep it, uh, whether it bears fruit or not. But the problem with faithfulness is the main paradigm is, is that... Um, it's certainly necessary, but you can faithfully do the wrong thing over and over and over again for decades. Um, you can faithfully preach the word and yet have that inward-faced church that's not bringing the gospel to those around them. But there's a third option, not success and not mere faithfulness, but rather fruitfulness. Fruitfulness where you're faithfully investing the gospel in others and faithfully investing your very life in others and in things close to the heart of God and, 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 and where you see people's lives, people who weren't believing begin to believe, people who were timid become bold in their faith, people who had never prayed in public before suddenly are leading a prayer gathering in their home. Barren lives are becoming fruitful. You know, the people are, are, are bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Dead souls are becoming alive. And disciples are being made. This is not a competition. It's not about success. It's not about making sure you're the guy who gets a tenfold increase. It's about faithfully investing and praying for God's fruit to come. What can free us to be gospel risk takers? How is it possible? The only way to invest God's grace is if you first understand the master's smile Look at how the last servant viewed the master. He viewed him as an ogre. He viewed him as unfair. But you look at the true master. You know, in Matthew's account of the similar par parable, the master says, come and share your master's happiness. 
because our God is fundamentally a joyful God. Nehemiah speaks about the joy of the Lord. First Timothy talks about the blessed God, meaning the happy God. Jesus says in John, these things I told you so that my joy, the joy by which Jesus himself is overflowing with happiness and joy, that my joy may be in you as well. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The Bible says that God's a lot of things. It says he's just, he's holy, he's wrathful, he's loving. But, you know, the Bible doesn't say God is wrath or God is justice, but it does say that God is love. The presence of absolute, pure, unadulterated love, longing to overflow into others. Until your theology changes, you can't do it. Change theology has to be experienced, you know. As you picture the face of God looking down upon you right now, you know, what do you see? Do you see his smile? Do you see the laughter lines of his face? Do you see a father kicking back his head and laughing in delight? Do you, do you see a God who makes a million squirrels and a million bunny rabbits with no two exactly alike? A God who makes thousands of kittens and puppies every single day and turns around and does it again. A God who delights in all he has made. A God who delights in you who follow his son. Do you see the master's smile? G.K. Chesterton said it like this. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we do you know that God likes you, that he smiles upon you? Do you see the radical happiness of God? That'll set you free. It can motivate you. It's a release that you might come and share in your master's happiness. How can God change the greedy, resentful servant into the joyful, risk-taking servant who invests everything he gets in the things of God? How can he change your experience of God at a foundational level uh, that ultimately took something more than you or I could manage. That's where we have to zoom out and recognize the mission of Jesus to rescue us. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He invested everything he had, even his physical body, even his, 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 his humanity, his incarnation. He invested all of it. He gave it up. He let it be destroyed but in order to get the one thing that he wanted even more which is you, Jesus the risk taker, Jesus the investor who goes to the cross investing everything in order to gain a people who would go and do likewise. You see, that's what Jesus did for us. He picked the most damaged, the most helpless, and he rescued us at great personal cost. He did it because he loves you. And he did it because he had unending happiness and he wanted you to share in his happiness. He did it so that, that you might go out on mission to invest his grace in others.
So Ernie's wife, Cheryl, called and said, I found the one God wants us to adopt. That wasn't the deal. They were going to get a 6 to 12 month old, perfectly healthy girl. And out of Ernie's mouth came words that can only be generated by someone who is seeing the master smile. He said, let's bring him home. That boy in some ways progressed far better than they ever could have dreamed. He, he didn't, in fact, have autism. He did have a degenerative disease that would eventually take his life. But he did talk, and he did tell his mom and dad how much he loved them, and he did have great joy in life. There were certainly tons of challenges, uh, deeply broken physically and in other ways, and he required extraordinary care uh, from his parents, who were already busy. They had adopted other children as well. But this couple had seen the master smile, and it freed them to take risks, to invest that smile in others, because that's what Jesus did for them. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great grace to us in Christ, and we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you might minister the gospel to us. We pray in his name. Amen.